Our guests today are Dr. Joanne Lindbergh and Dr. Lisa G, who've joined us to talk about neurodiversity. Since turning 40, Joanne was diagnosed with autism and Lisa was diagnosed with ADHD. Both are advocates for greater support and understanding for neurodiverse people. Joanne and Lisa also happen to be cousins and have unique insights about life, family, and work from a non-neurotypical perspective. Joanne is a lecturer in creative writing in Cambridge, an author and essayist of feminist fiction, nonfiction, and poetry collections. Her works include The Autistic Alice, The Woman Who Thought Too Much, a memoir about OCD, anxiety, and poetry, and Letters to My Weird Sisters on Autism and Feminism. Lisa is a lecturer in creative writing and digital media at the University of Birmingham and an author. Lisa tells us she is easily distracted and while simultaneously teaching has several creative projects on the go as well as working as lead associate director at Ferner Communications on social policy and inclusion. Welcome to the podcast. We are delighted to have you. Lovely to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excellent. So we called today's episode People Think I'm Odd because there's no way of getting away from it. People treat non-neurotypical people as odd, different, somewhat other. Has that been your experience? Yes, pretty much. I'm thinking about, must have been some 30 years ago now, more than 30 years ago, I was at a party with mostly medical students at it and I was talking to someone I'd not met before and after a while she said, are you a writer? And I said, well, yes. And she said, I thought it must be something like that. <laughs> wow. As if she just diagnosed me. So, you know, I mean, that that's an indication of how I strike people. <laughs> <laughs> I think right is not too bad actually. I mean, could have been could have been much weirder. Maybe that was the weirdest thing she could think of at the time. Yeah, it, it was just the the way she, she 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 said it. It was a sort of you're not a normal person, are you? You don't do a normal thing. Yeah. And and why do people feel the necessity to point that out to that person? I don't know. People point all sorts of things out. Like they'll point out to a six foot five person that they're tall as if they wouldn't have noticed till that moment. (laughs) (laughs) What's been your experience, Lisa? Not so much odd. I mean, when I was growing up, I was badly behaved. I was, my behavior was all, well, sorry, my, all, everything that was different about me was, was regarded as bad behavior rather than anything else i was a rebel i was thoughtless i was lazy now these days do people think i'm odd not when they first meet me (laughs) (laughs) usually usually takes a while before they go okay (laughs) you stop talking and stop talking at me and go in and and just you know leave me alone this is like when you start a new job. I don't talk a lot at first, so so I can get people used to the idea before I reveal my true personality, and then people think I'm on. <laughs> That's often my strategy in a situation. I'm very quiet and watchful at first, not always, yeah. but often. <laughs> no, I, I I bounce in with a lot of opinions. <laughs> and, I mean, I didn't also always when I was when I was younger, particularly. I mean, menopause has made a big difference, I think, and I'm much happier now, and I'm much, I'm much more comfortable going. I know you've all been doing this forever, and I'm new here, but you're wrong, and I'm right. <laughs> I like the way that menopause is giving you some kind of superpower over yeah. your life. I don't think it's, I don't think it's superpower. I'm still human, but what it's taken away are any inhibitions I might have had beforehand. All two of them, eh? 
I'm, I'm not sure there were quite that many, but um, <laughs> but I'm well. What it's given me, to be fair, I would say is more confidence. But that's also come with a, a broad range of experience and greater clarity of thinking. That's interesting. So with an ADHD situation, is that something that people with ADHD struggle with is focus? It depends. Um, And I don't know. And I can't speak for everybody with ADHD. And I would say I am also waiting for an autism diagnosis. It varies because there are there's this thing called hyperfocus as well. So when I was sort of about to do my O levels, yes, that is how old I am. um, I didn't think I could remember anything. I found memory, you know, I couldn't focus, I couldn't concentrate. And then I read an article about a, in a music, in the music press, about a group that I particularly liked, and I can't remember um, exactly which one it was, or I can remember and I'm embarrassed about which one it was, I'm not sure which. And I realised, I came away and I realised that I could more or less remember everything that was written down because Mm -hmm. I was interested in it. So what you've got is if something can engage you, if you can be engaged, and obviously this is something that I sort of remember when, try to remember when I'm teaching rather than just getting carried away as I am now. And so, yeah, so getting back to what you were saying, uh, yes, there can be issues with focus, but on the other hand, there can be very good focus as well because there is this thing called hyperfocus for when you're interested. That's really fascinating. What's been your experience growing up, Joanne? You know, like the way people respond to you or the way you responded to them? Oh, I, I had a, a very difficult time as a child. You know, very, you know, Lisa's endorsing that. Yeah, I, I was very sort of much an outsider at school and and I wound up sort of being quite school avoidant so my parents at the suggestion of I did have a friend my friend's parents took me to see um an ed psych educational psychologist who kind of diagnosed my IQ and told my parents to send me to a more academic school which was expensive but also and um I got a very good education but it was a way in retrospect of totally avoiding and denying the problem Hmm. So well, I think the problem wasn't so understood, though. Do you think? No, it, I, it 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 wasn't it wasn't visible. I mean, if hmm. I, I think if I would if I'd been at that age taken to an educational psychologist now, they'd have clocked that I was autistic. The one hmm. I was taken to said maybe there was something wrong with my hearing because I said what a lot didn't seem to be paying attention. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. But, girls weren't allowed. You, girls, sorry, I've interrupted. Girls weren't allowed to be neurodivergent when we were young. No, no, we 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 weren't. My mother wanted to make the best of it. Who wouldn't? And she was all very pleased that her daughter had had a gifted label put on her. So all mm-hmm. my social problems were down to that. Which, I couldn't understand that. Yeah, which didn't. I. I yeah, I, I can sort 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 of understand that, but it did it did lead to this sort of rather defensive arrogance on my side which I regret to this day even though I know it wasn't really my fault. And can I just say that Joanne is unbelievably bright and did incredibly well at school and as you can see that Joanne's issues were regarded as sort of health related and sort of psychologically related whereas because I was a an underachiever mine 
were categorized as behavior. And I also don't think that our mother's professions were unconnected to this here. So Joanne's mother was a social worker and my mother was a primary school teacher. Okay. The irony, because these days, those professions would be at the front line of looking at child behaviour and perhaps referring um, young people to the help that they need. But I think we, you know, women of our generation, we, we grew up at a time where people didn't understand these conditions. They, they only, if there was an understanding of them developing, it was very much through a male framework of what those symptoms were and everything about people who were different and the reason you know again why we call the episode people think I'm odd is because they think I'm a bit odd and so they've got to put it down to something and they just didn't have those tools and that language so it's got to be behavior it's got to be health or it's got to because you're gifted does it feel more freeing now that there is a label for it. One of the reasons why I am much happier now than I was young, and I also, you know, just also to say, I also wasn't happy um, as a child as well. But my happiness, my unhappiness, was less visible than than Joanne's was. One of the reasons why it's much easier to be me now, and I don't know, I can't, I won't speak for Joanne on this is that the world is much more accepting of difference. Yeah. Um, and I think, and the world has changed. I've always done lots of different things at the same time. When I was younger, it was really unusual to meet people who did that. Now it's much more usual. Young people now understand what it is to be ADHD, what it is to be autistic, and the different ways in which that can manifest. So, And, and they're accepting of it. Yeah. I think that there's also a gender component, which was that growing up in the 70s, it was very, very rigid. When mm -hmm. I, I remember how intensely sexist my primary school was. And this was taught, you know, as if it were a sort of a fact like geography, that boys were like this and girls were like that. And what girl, the, the number of things that girls could be was very restricted. And one of the things that seemed to upset people were girls being clever yeah yeah for sure so interestingly the i was just looking at the um nhs website around autism and and sort of how girls present and women present and what's really interesting is that autistic women these are the qualities they they highlight is they've learned to hide the signs of autism to fit in by copying people who don't have autism they're quieter and hide their feelings appear to cope better in social situations, show fewer signs of repetitive behavior, and it means it's harder to tell if you're autistic as a woman. And what's really interesting to me is that it mirrors what you were saying about the expectations on girls, that whatever your neurodiversity situation was, is there was a very narrow band in which you could fit in, and obviously autistic women felt the pressure to fit in in that way. It's a really interesting way of framing it on the website. I wonder if 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 you look up male autism, if it says they are more if they are compared to women or if they are put as the as the default still, because you've still got a situation in that experience where they're not looking at women at women as people. They're looking at women and comparing them with men. Yeah. So mm. I can semi answer that. I sort of deliberately ignored anything about men. Um, but the <laughs> the text that I did copy 
just says generally autistic may behave autistic people may act in a different way to other people and then it lists some qualities but it doesn't call out men present in this way so i would say your hunch is probably correct that the male model is the is the basic understanding and then we are the deviant just occurred to me now that it may not even be different behavior it may be that the same behavior is interpreted differently according to the person's gender mm -hmm. so a quiet girl isn't a problem mm -hmm. a very quiet boy people notice that's a very good point that is a very good mm. observation and yeah. i think it works for adhd as well if you what lisa you were saying about bad behavior well a badly behaved boy, he's finding his feet, he's a bit of a lad, isn't he? But badly behaved girl at that time, that's that's a whole different thing. That's not something people can get their head around. That's not how girls were supposed to be. Yeah. Mm. You, yeah. You're supposed to colour within the lines. <laughs> oh, I never <laughs> that, did. That's the, that's it's the first thing I think of when I think about what was thought to be good in girls when I was at school, just neat. <laughs> <laughs> just, 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 just neatness seemed more important than than anything, and it was almost untidy of me to have a bigger vocabulary somehow. <laughs> so, what prompted you both to seek diagnoses post forty? What, what was the impetus? Oh, well, in my case, it was a series of very difficult events. Um, I mean, I, I'd already by that time acquired various diagnoses depression anxiety ocd which weren't wrong but um they weren't getting to the heart of the matter and um when i was 38 my my brother julian took his own life in the lead up to that he'd uh, he was in america and he'd been diagnosed with what was called adult add and he told me he thought our whole nuclear family had it and um but my my mother was um she was quite happy to hear that i was gifted she wouldn't have liked to hear that there was anything quote unquote wrong with mm. any of us and so i looked uh, after my mother died three years after my brother died because she just didn't i just knew that it was impossible to think about it while she was alive i looked into adhd and it didn't fit but i'd always sort of wondered about autism i'd even as a you know years ago for a few months worked at the National Autistic Society in an admin role and I did wonder but I never seemed to match up to the criteria and then someone I was at university with uh, put up on Facebook that she'd been diagnosed and she wasn't someone I would have necessarily thought of and so I looked up autism women and there I was so wow. I yeah so I went to the doctor and because I'm in Cambridge and we have a good local free diagnostic service which is unusual and because relatively few people were doing this then and because my doctors knew me and you know they they knew that I was weird they they referred me I mean there, there was one wrong term when I was just re referred to the kind of lowest tier psychological thing and she was trying to assess me for CBT and I just said to, I don't know why I'm here I think there's been a, a miscommunication because I've had CBT and I don't want any more of it I it's an autism diagnosis. Yeah, what is CBT? Sorry, uh, cognitive behaviour therapy. It's the oh, sort of standard first line therapy. For it, I was gonna. I was gonna say it's the NHS's first first line. It's like the physical example. Of said they send you to physio if something hurts. And yeah, I think that's a that's a really good analogy. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, I was um, 
sent to this centre and then I was diagnosed at 41 and Lisa was my family informant because my parents weren't around right by then and she's if she doesn't mind my saying so older enough to me that she can remember me as an infant which is more than I could and yeah I they they gave it to me without much demur didn't they mm. yeah they did <laughs> yes they went yeah definitely if I remember rightly it was uh, yeah definitely it's not a little bit well, I was quite fortunate that I had, we, we, when I'd written the OCD book, I pulled my medical records and there were records in there of my being taken to a speech therapist, which is quite unusual for a girl anyway, when I was about mm. seven or eight. And they just said, she, she, she's a very bright girl, severely lacked eye contact. And right now you'd go, aha, yeah. but not in the yeah. 70s. The signs are there, but they don't know what they mean. And someone's picked it up. The speech therapist has picked it up, but doesn't know the significance of what they've picked up. Exactly. Just like the uh, educational psychologist a little bit after that noticed that my, um, my language processing issues, which are not hearing problems per se, and mistook them for hearing problems. Ah, uh, yes. So do you process information in a different way? What sometimes happens to me with language is that, and it's taken me a long time to realise this is what is happening, the sound and the sense come in separate packets. So if you imagine, you know, the old fashioned sort of um, Apple waiting screen where, where, where you'd see a little file f flying into a folder. It's like they're in separate files is the way I see it. So the um, sound will get to me a beat before the sense. So I'll just get a load of noise. And then, but it happened so quickly, it took me a long time to recognize this is what's happening, and then it will sort itself out. So, people will often start repeating themselves, thinking I've not got it, and then I'll, I'll answer them because it's just, it's just a, a bit scrambled and needs to come together. So, it's like a lag on a video call almost. Exactly, it, it, exactly. And it's taken me, you know, well into my adulthood to realize that's what's happening because I, I, I have childhood memories of I, I was often under tables listening to adults of, um, adult sentences suddenly disappearing into gobbledygook gook. and I would think was that just because I didn't understand the words because I was little and then maybe were they speaking Yiddish and I think no it's that my ability to process the language glitched just at that point of the memory. Wow mm. so what changed for you when you got the diagnosis how how did you feel about it? Well, I realised that I could be more compassionate towards myself, having been angry with myself for everything, for, for, for not living up to my potential, for not being an economically productive citizen, for being very anxious, for having been, certainly as a young person, very difficult. Actually, I'm still working on being compassionate about that because I think I still struggle. Yeah, I really, really struggle not, not to wish I hadn't behaved differently. I struggle with that. Not your fault. No, it no. wasn't your responsibility either. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. But I think I just accept that um, I have a disability and that some things are tiring for me and some things are stressful. And, you know, it, it, it's an ongoing process. And why should I do them? I mean, the first thing I thought was I'm never going to attempt to wear a, a wrap dress again because I don't know how to tie them. <laughs> and I will never know how to tie them. That was my first thought. I'm never, I'm never going to figure out. You know how to what? Tie wrap I sleep. You're not alone. I struggle <laughs> with wrap dresses, and also those What's the way wrap people dress? not. 
<laughs> well, exactly. It's a, it's a dress where, where you wrap it around and you tie it, you know. Yeah, but it's you know, never quite you know. clear. And they always undo as well. Yeah, they, they undo, um, you're, you're running for the bus and suddenly you're going, ta-da! Yeah. <laughs> I will not wear a wrap dress without a vest and leggings, but then I am. I had a very uptight northern upbringing, what can I say? So how about you, Lisa? Yeah. I'm just going to say one thing about Joanne and what happened when she got her diagnosis. And then I will segue into answering your question. Since Joanne's had her diagnosis, she's been a much easier person to be around, more comfortable, because I would say that Joanne, I'm going to talk about her as if she isn't here, which she clearly is. (laughs) I would say that after diagnosis, Joanne has, since diagnosis, Joanne has been more relaxed. Now, whether that's because the um, need for wearing wrap dresses has disappeared. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> it's the wrap dresses. It's, it's, it's just a lot easier. So there are two questions for me, essentially. One is, why didn't you get an autism, go for an autism diagnosis after you sat there in Joanne's sort of session going, yeah, yeah, that's me too. Yeah, not, I mean, maybe not as much as Joanne on that. Yeah, but I do that. Yeah, I feel that too. And the reason for that is because I think I'm really good at reading subtext in what people say. And the psychiatrist who was assessing Joanne turned to me and said, yes, you can, you can have some of the traits without being on the spectrum, which I obviously interpreted to mean that she had also diagnosed me and uh, assessed me and I wasn't autistic. Which is, I think, Joanne, would you say that's quite an autistic? Yes, very either or. I mean, she, she, she wasn't going to tell you one way or the other because it wouldn't have been responsible yeah. or appropriate. And I didn't mean she didn't think, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and thinking about it later, it's like, well, why didn't she just say, yes, it sometimes runs in families, but we're talking about, we're focusing on Joanne here, which... I think would have been the right thing to say in that situation. So I didn't go for an autism diagnosis at that point. What led me to an ADHD diagnosis um, was two things. One was I hit, after menopause, I realized I was the only friend, I was the only person of my age group who still appeared to have the energy levels and patterns of a toddler and many of the same enthusiasms. (laughs) I I hear you, sister. (laughs) (laughs) I just I I really thought at that point I would have stopped jumping up and down with excitement when I met people, and I don't. When I met people that I'm keen to see, not you know, actually, and sometimes, sometimes just generally, I could you know, it's my daughter who kept looking at me and going, "Mum, you're really not neurotypical." There was another thing, which was she was at this amazing uh, musical theatre training college, which tragically has closed down, called the Musical Theatre Academy. And the founder, Anne-Marie's wife, um, was an adolescent mental health specialist. So everybody who went to the college was seen, you know, got, they had people to talk to on tap, 24 7 they all had free counseling whenever they wanted it I mean it was amazing mental health wise yeah anyway Angie said to Dora I think she got to fill out a form, few forms and said I think you're ADHD and I was talking to Anne-Marie about this after one of their performances and the conversation went something like this me going 
I'm really surprised because she's got really good focus. Namri nodded. And, and Dora picks up stuff like that. And then I went, I taught her how, you know, ever since when she was like three, I taught her, how, you know, I taught her how to work because no one, everyone always used to tell me how that I needed to work harder, but I never understood what that actually meant. So when Dora started having some of the same things, when she had to sit down and focus, I saw some of the same feelings as, as I did. I just, I just taught her how. And then Anne-Marie just looked at me in silence. <laughs> oh. I went, I taught her how to work if you have ADHD, didn't I? And she went, yes. And I went, you mean not everybody feels fizzy when they have to sit down and concentrate and has to get up and bounce around a lot and then come back and then come back to it and then learn how to work through that. that. <laughs> and then the final thing was lockdown. The thing about lockdown was that I really fucking loved it. I mean, I, I'll put that in context. I have a very privileged existence. I have outdoors. I have space indoors. I, at the time, I had two lodges, um, and I didn't bite either of them during lockdown, which I think is quite good. That's a me, which is also quite good. That was on my uh, top five things of not to do during lockdown, <laughs> to bite mum, people I was sharing a house with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was quite good. I mean, And space for his teeth, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah basically and I realized there were so many things I mean we talk about masking quite a lot I think masking is a really poor metaphor because with a mask there's this idea that you can take it off I didn't realize the things that I found stressful until I wasn't allowed to do them anymore what were they traveling meetings the anxiety of getting everything ready to go somewhere. I didn't realize I was experiencing it. So when all these stressors were taken away and I was like, oh, that's better. And I also discovered that with one or two exceptions, I like people better when they are in, or just as much when they are in small two dimensional squares on the screen as when they are in real life, as when they're there sort of in three dimensions. And I know there are various reasons for this. I mean, there are a couple of people I missed. Those are the things that led to the ADHD diagnosis. I would, if it hadn't been for that one comment that was made during Joanne's session, I would have also sought an autism diagnosis earlier. Mm, yeah, I think there, there, there's always huge overlap between the two. And I possibly may have, you know, the double as well, because I certainly experienced that fizziness. Wow, fizziness is a great word. It's I, I great know exactly word. what you mean by it. Yeah. Am, uh, I allowed, am I allowed to ask Joanne a question? Sorry, you can do whatever you like. Tell me to shut up. When I usually in meetings, I tell people that my reasonable adjustment is that they can tell me to shut up because I, I won't otherwise. Joanne, how did you manage that fizziness to be so focused and do achieve so much academically when you were a child without anyone sort of telling you how? I don't know. Well, I, I guess I wasn't fizzy for everything. I wasn't fizzy when I was really. And, and also, I think someone said to me once that, you know, a lot of people are lions, but but you're a cheater. You, you, you short burst and then sleep for 20 hours. So I know that I can work intensely in short bursts. Very occasionally on a very blessed day, I will get flow and get hyper focused for hours. But normally I, I've just realized how much I hate sitting still. 
and how much, especially if I'm, you know, just in the audience for something, because I need to sort of speak or act, not to sort of show off, but just to kind of renew my contact with the space, I've realised, or, or, or it times out somehow, and I just want to walk away. So I don't know quite, I, I think I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it, I was just, just me, but I was always quite, quite fidgety. But you see, I would do most, most of my schoolwork pretty quickly. It's interesting because Caroline, you report fidgetiness all the time. You can't stand mm. sitting still. You hate meetings where you have to sit still all the time. Yeah, I find it a real problem like Lisa and I are doing. She's full on does not care and is jiggling around. I don't care. It's and making I... me feel a bit freer, actually, that maybe I can move a bit. Chia, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, uh, Joanne, about saying that you had a disability, because I really hate that personally, that feeling that what someone is, is a disability, because I think there are so many ways of being. And, and it's all, mm. all about that sort of is comparing you against a norm, which yeah. actually I don't think really exists. Well, no, it doesn't. But but I but when I say I have a disability, I'm not necessarily using the medical model which is what yes. you're referring to yeah. I'm saying you know this is the social category yeah to which I belong and I am in um what's the word lovely word serial collective what with all the mean? various people it means that you're similar but dissimilar that for the purposes of something you're, you're together so I may not have much in common with someone who say has cerebral palsy but and not autism but we but we're in the same serial collective because we're in the same social category and we can help each other by having solidarity and acting together. Mm. You see, I've, I've just come to see the word di di disability as not as there's something wrong with you, but it's the word we use for the time being. If you have a non-standard body or mind or, or yeah. body. I mean, I totally agree with you. Normal is a complete fiction. Well, it yeah. is. And I mean, when I think about things that I have always sort of struggle with again what you were saying Lisa things I've struggled with like I have absolutely no sense of direction and driving was a really difficult thing for me direction wise until I got sat nav or I know where I am and I know the routes and going places always stressed me out because I didn't know whether I'd be able to find my way from the station to the destination even with a map I thought everybody felt like that but apparently not because my partner doesn't feel like that my children are, are not like that but the nice thing is is like now I'm actually open about it do you know what I mean I've stopped apologizing for it because I've realized that it's something I can't help it's like just you know if I go to a building and I go to a different floor I would pan and I would panic yeah I, I panic. call it my place blindness yeah oh, interesting yeah Lisa you've been you've been yes. so polite <laughs> Well, I have to be because otherwise I would just, <laughs> just it, the words would just come out and, you know, I have no control over that. I, I have no control over my brain. My, you know, I am basically my brain's pet creature. <laughs> That's a great description. <laughs> you know, it just does its shit and I, you know, and I have to do what it tells me. Otherwise, things just, I, otherwise, well, I just have to. There's no otherwise. Um, and I'm wondering... Joanne, you mentioned the medical model of disability, and Caroline, you talked about being uncomfortable. But the the reason that there's an alternative to the medical model of disability, which is used much more, and why people are, a lot of people are much will say I am disabled, 
now because it and it's the social model of disability which basically says it's not the problem is not a medical problem that I have or it's not to do with the any impairment I might have what it is it's the barriers that society puts up and it's the barriers that society puts up that are disabling and I am disabled by the barrier by the fact that people so I would have been disabled by the fact that when I first started working in a civil service job I would have been disabled by the fact that they expected you before they promoted you to be good at lots of different things and what tended to happen in that and I observed it when I was working at a very junior level in um, a job centre in Brighton was that people would be rotated to do different jobs and you had to stay in a job until you were good at it which you know, as a as a process specialist, Eve, you will understand is really counterproductive because basically what it means is that people end up stuck in jobs that they're really shit at. There's some really interesting work done uh, by a psychologist called Nancy Doyle, who founded a company called Genius Within. Um, and she talks about a lot about neuro- the thing about being neurodivergent is that rather than having a fairly kind of even spread of skills, you're, you have a very, very spiky strengths pro- and Spiky weak. profile, they talk very about, spiky. don't they? And you're always yeah. saying that mine's spikier than yours, you think? Yeah, I think Joanne's spikier. I'm very spiky. Joanne's very spiky. <laughs> is there a little competitive thing going on on spikiness here between cousins? Is there... <laughs> we're not really competitive are we we're not no no um we, we no i mean it, it it's just it's 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 that family thing within families which is, i did some research for a book a book that i wrote uh back in 20, um 2004 what families often do we think about competition because we've grown up in a cap we, because we've grown up in a capitalist competitive environment with a a theory of evolution that is based on that sort of grew up alongside capitalism and is focused on um competition but actually what happens in families mostly is that people sort of go well that older person that person does this therefore i will do something that's kind of adjacent but isn't competition so you collaborate so it's it's mm. kind of congruent um and actually and there's a really good book um that came out sort of early this millennium which i never see cited anywhere these days called mother nature it's huge by um a writer called sarah blaff Laffer Hardy and the surname is like Hardy but with no A and which looks at the fact that there's as much evidence for a more for a more collaborative than competitive theory theory of evolution. That's interesting. So tell us more about spikiness then. So tell us what does spikiness look like? Is that so you have deep skills in particular things and gaps in other places? So, for example, when I got into the independent school that I did, um, they when they talked to my parents, they went, look, her verbal skills are way off the scale, but her maths is really average. So okay. something like that. Or it would be, for example, 
they say with a lot i mean i know a lot of very creative dyslexic people who because they don't use you know they don't use the written word think about things and configure things in a very different way and and use language and things very differently and um, yeah so mm. so that i mean i don't know joanne well i think of spikiness it's that sort of clever stupid thing it's like you're so good at it's like you know you're so good at school how come you have no common sense oh, so God, it, yeah. it's a certain correct it's definitely a correction to the idea that there's something called general intelligence which we all yeah. have a specific quantity of which is rubbish it's totally rubbish yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i really i really object to that as well it's and, yeah because um, I'm, I'm thinking about when i was there's um there's something called the halo effect which is that if someone is particularly beautiful um you know which obviously i'm not or particularly bright then this is seen as a sort of general good at thingsness and when i was 10 uh, the teacher once left me in charge of the class an absolute mayhem broke out because she, she thought because i had a good um vocabulary and i was good at work and working ahead of my age that i must be mature i was mm. not yeah. <laughs> yeah that's really interesting it's like misreading you know misreading I, I, the situation i yes. love the way the world sometimes feels like that we're a whole package and we're just like stacked on shelves you know yeah we're here we're here we're here you know different levels it's just yeah. it's just not like that is it it's, yeah i mean well what, what I used to say to, to my son growing up again and again and again, one of the things I said again and again and again when he came back from school with so-and-so did this and I did that and they did whatever, I'd say everybody's different, good at different things. I mean, I'm noticing this with uh, my kids have been going through GCSEs and everything. And in order to get into six forms, you have to have like all your GCSEs at a certain grade. And I, I keep thinking of this and thinking, but this is crazy. What happens if you're a brilliant artist, but you're rubbish at maths? Yeah, or... I mean, a lot of people have di dyscalculia and it doesn't matter how many times you teach them. Yeah, I find it really odd. I think the system is truly fucked and I don't yeah. think we should play the game. And I think the fewer people play the game, the better. And I say that as a very privileged person um, mm. and it's different. Mm. It's, it's different if you come from perhaps, you know, if you're first generation immigrant, from a first generation immigrant family and you're establishing yourself um, and you need that. And of course, we come from that background at least a generation back, don't we? You know, being yeah. Jewish, it's... Yeah. I mean, the, the Jewish stereotype is like the South Asian stereotype of what families expect you to do. And it's a stereotype for a good reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's a very, I mean, it's very difficult to fight against it because if you want to get into a, a school that has a good sixth form, you need to have all your, even if, you know, like, again, you're a brilliant mathematician, but you're, you know, you're rubbish at, you can't do English lit and lang. You can't get into that sixth form and therefore you will have to go and find and do your A-levels or B-techs or what you want to do in a different environment. I mean, it's just it just doesn't lend itself to this. The education system doesn't lend itself to the spikiness. And it's very hard for people to progress. These struggles that we're seeing young people have at school, this carries on 
all the way through into our working lives. And obviously, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about how we manage at work. And funnily enough, I'm not obsessively going back to the word, word disabled, but I tell you what, the, the good thing about some of these conditions and it being considered a disability is the allowances you get in the workplace and at school and the things you can access. So although I I don't like the word because I think we're all on the spectrum yeah. and we all have different traits and we're not all just this normative thing. The the world that we're in at the moment, if you do get a diagnosis and it is badged as a disability, it's the way to access things at particularly at work. And I think that's very helpful to people, not just at yeah. school, but work as well. Yeah, exactly. I think I think don't think of it as a label that attaches to the person. Think of it as a tool yeah that fixes certain things it's a useful concept mm. yeah. that's a really good way things. of looking yeah. at it yeah i've got some stats but i want to hear what lisa has to say first i mean as somebody who's still going through it you know still waiting for an autism diagnosis and is going through the other thing the idea and i've been working in inclusion particularly in disability and a bit in in sort of women's or, or gender area when i sort of used to work on what on the women's prize for fiction when it was the orange prize and the the sense that i'm going is that oh i mean i might be entitled to something i might be entitled to help i might not have to struggle in a way that i thought everybody struggled but just managed it better yeah and i might be able to forgive myself for struggling and allow myself to struggle and allow myself to say you know what i'm not going to do this or i'm taking time out Yes. Because it is harder for me than other people. Yes. It's not that I'm making a fuss. It's not that I'm lazy. It is harder for me. I mean, I'm sort mm. of a, a, in the process of applying for access to work stuff. And I had no idea that I, I mean, I have, I've got de Quervain sinusitis, which means that I've got problem with this wrist and this hand. And it, it's really fucking painful sometimes. I commute from my home to work at Birmingham I stay with a brilliant colleague up there who's amazing and I will drive rather than taking the train even though that is one of, that really hurts physically because the physical pain is better than the stress and anxiety I now realize I have taking a long train journey and I I, I, I work with um Phone Communications is a disability-led consultancy. Um, and my old friend, Ben, who I work with on that, who I met when he was on the other side of the desk from me in Brighton Job Centre, and I got into terrible trouble in my early 20s, fraternising across the desk. I've been working with him since, um, you know, for about probably more than 15 years now uh, for his company. And I rang him up and I was like, look, access to work what should I do? And he was like, what do you want? And I'm like, I don't know what I need. I don't know what I'm entitled to. And I really haven't got a clue. And he said, don't fill on the form online, but make phone phone up. So I rang up, sat on hold for half an hour. I did 35 million other things because ADHD. And um, it's just efficiency in my mind. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is amazing. Multitasking. Yeah. yeah. And and so eventually I get through to the person and she said, do you need help traveling? And I hadn't even thought that I might be entitled to do anything 
with that. I'm oh. never even when I looked at the form, I thought, no, I just I just need something at work, probably um, probably noise cancelling headphones, but not for me, for all my colleagues. Um, and, <laughs> and when I was talking to her, I was like, yeah, I do find that really. Oh, oh, my God. That's that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell us what access to work is. Is it a program or a fund? It's a government program. It's government funding for if you need adjustments at work um, or traveling to and from work. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time. I mean, the assessment takes about four. You know, they, they're really sort of lot of demand so it will be four or five months before is it the same sort of thing that students might get so you might get assistive technology or you might get a scribe yeah or you might get some kind of or mentoring. a taxi yeah or a taxi to work yeah. it's like i i do not feel that giving a tax that taxing me from london to birmingham is a particularly good use of public money so i won't be asking for that but if there's something you know if they can sort of organize subsidized train travel for me more uh, less busy times or times or or yeah. yeah or whatever that's that's or on a more expensive train that i would take mm. um so yes it's a government scheme that provides access to work and it's not means tested okay that's well. interesting so I have some stats that I wanted to share with you. And then I want to use that as a leaping off point to talk a little bit more about sort of reasonable adjustments and what that means and also what your work experience has been as well. So the ADHDaware.org.uk says they estimate around 15% of the total UK population is neurodivergent, of which... 8% are thought to have ADHD, which equivalent, sorry, which equates to 1.9 million adults. And then of which also the, of the 15%, so 8% ADHD, 1% are thought to have autistic spectrum, uh, be on the autistic spectrum rather. And that works out to about 700,000 adults in the UK. So it's not an insignificant number of people. You talked about um, Caroline about it just being people being different I mean I do have a friend stroke acquaintance in India and we were talking about it and she went yeah it's just cap it's just capitalism's way of trying to get everybody to conform to a group it is it's it's evolutionarily adaptive to have people who approach things and think in different ways it is not capital it is not a appropriate to um, a capitalist, particularly socioeconomic approach. It is particularly not appropriate to an industrialized sort of exactly. 20th century, everybody needs to basically be a cog in a wheel organizational. Yeah, it's, it's a sort of Fordism thing. I might talk about um, how in, in Letters to My Weird Sisters, how, how the Vic in, in the Victorian times, everything becomes a sort of factory. So everybody has to sort of work. Society clocks synchronize across society because of the railways, it's technology that does that. And everyone has to do the same thing at the same time. So the concept of abnormal, both educationally and at work comes up because for the first time there is a standard timetable in which certain developmental markers or certain levels of productivity are expected to be hit. 
Oh, that's so interesting. That makes I, a lot of sense. And I yeah. think it's just the total opposite to how I feel when I've worked places that are really well-functioning workplaces where people are, their their skills are valued. And if they mm. have areas where they're not so good, that's kind of picked up by other people. I like workplaces where there's an age range, you've mm. got people with different skills. I mean, I've seen... You know, I've seen people who've got vast amounts of experience and are perhaps older in the workplace being criticised for not being too fast at task. Whereas actually there are other people in the workplace to be that kind of buzzy fast person, aren't they? But that person should be revered for their experience and used for that. And and there are other people who are, you know, a different, a different stage of their career and they've got some other... Dynamism and new ideas to add, but they might not have the experience. And to mm. me, it should be a balance. But then I'm all for a happy world where it's, we all get on together and everything's wonderful. So, uh, but I mean, it's also much more productive. I mean, that's the thing. Strength-based working is much more effective and productive. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I sort of still worry about the the effect the effect of, of all that because and once you go from having a job to a career so I'm on a particular spine and ladder as you often are in academe and I started the same time as three other people and of course I'm programmed to think this I think what if because I find certain things difficult such as forms requesting promotions I find it hard to what if I thought I don't really really want to do that but how would I feel if they all in my head raced ahead of me I feel shit I'd feel shit about the job and I'd feel shit about myself and I thought it's such a shame that I I, I feel like I have to do even though I know I can't do everything they do just to show that I've ticked all the boxes yeah but you do other things so much better than yeah. other people well that is the problem with yeah but they've never been really... hierarchical yeah work systems you know mm -hmm. where people have to complete certain things or be good at certain things to move to the next level there are lots of people who have great skills in one area but mm. if they can't progress because they can't you know they're not good at one aspect to me it, it just doesn't work you yeah, know but I've never had the impression that the things I was really good at counted for anything in that kind of setup mm -hmm. well I don't know what to say to that, apart from, I Lisa's mean... Lisa's not agreeing with me. <laughs> no, well, I, I don't think any of us would agree with you on that. I think mm -hmm. it's very hard. Sorry, Lisa, you're... you're I, don't know, I don't know if I disagree with Joanne. I think, I think one of the places, one of the ways in which Joanne and I differ is that Joanne, uh, because I've never... Because and I think it's because Joanne was so successful academically initially and so that therefore there was in a way I mean please correct me if I'm wrong there was it because because how you were was put down to you being gifted which you are such an amazing writer so so there was space for that to it's very hard to see or to feel good about one's own talents and what we are good at it's much easier to measure ourselves by what other people have and what we don't have it, it, it is and I don't feel like I'm very good with moving through institutions and speaking their language back to them I was just say it depends on the institution so interestingly I was having a conversation with my husband last night about my career you know in anticipation of this conversation and 
I was sort of reflecting how many times I had the wrong opinion. I never had the right decision. I could never see the right thing. I was never, I didn't, I couldn't understand the strategy or I couldn't be strategic or um, my PowerPoints were too detailed. They were not detailed enough. Like there was, uh, there was always fault with me rather than, well, maybe we're not looking at this the right way or which is what I was always advocating, which is, well, think about it a different way. Look at it a different way. And, you know, the conformity and the sort of the group think around how we do things has always been really difficult for me because I'm always like, but, but look over there. Maybe there's something more interesting over there. Yeah, but, 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 but also I'm very, I'm sorry, Lisa, I'm very aware that how people progress through institutions and certainly through academe, it's not about, you know, the things you do that are on the job duties list. It's the stuff you do to show that you are material. So it's a performative aspect. I've got to perform that I'm the next level up. Mm. And I don't find that easy or fun. I and don't think you're alone in that at all. And also I think some people are very good at it and some people are very good at it at moving up without actually having the skills, but they're just they're very good at demonstrating. Highly gendered, sorry, I spoke. It is incredibly gendered. Yeah. gendered. Men are promoted on promise, women are promoted on evidence. And that's, you know, that's historically how it's worked. And you mm. know what? They and um, women judge themselves by the, this. I went to an event by the Fawcett Society, which was about um, a campaign for a 50-50 parliament to get more women in. Francis, Francis Scott. That sounds about right. And, you know, they were saying we want more average women in parliament. Women think that they have to be the absolute best, the absolute, meet every criteria. She says lots of men think, oh, I'll have a go. I'll put myself forward. Yeah, I could do that. I could be an MP. Whereas um, they find that women are not coming forward because they think, well, I'm not good at this and I'm not good at that. And maybe I won't be good at this. Yeah, I've, I've got to be, you know, I've got to tick all of these boxes and I've got to have all of this. And therefore, they're not putting themselves forward. And they're saying, look, if an average man is putting themselves forward, we want average women coming forward. But what they're saying is that we look at the evidence of ourselves and not the promise, which yeah. is the opposite to what you just said, Lisa, and in that, you know, we are and kind of but this needs to change, doesn't I mean, it? Eve might have some facts and figures on this, but the fact of the matter is, even when we do put ourselves forward, we are less likely to be picked up on promise. Uh, mm. And we need to evidence more. It's this, you know, we do have to be better. It's the same for people of colour that you have yeah. to be, but any marginalised group, um, you do have to be better before people will look at you. Yeah, I feel that's very well established. Yeah. I do have another interesting stat that is slightly tangential but connected, which sort of speaks to some of what you're talking about, which is uh, a Birkbeck College study. Um, they surveyed 1,117 people, including 127 employers, 990 neurodivergent employees. They discovered that there were very stark barriers to neurodivergent employees disclosing their condition to employers because 65% of employees feared discrimination from management 
and 55% feared discrimination from colleagues. So it's really interesting what you guys were discussing around the barriers to even women moving up, it just the sort of the barriers as they are about being evidence-based versus potential-based. But then you add, I think, that sort of neurodiversity layer on top, and then people feel even less able to, because they're, you know there's real discrimination happening what were you going to think say about that lisa i was going to say i've never been promoted my social and intellectual peers from school and university earn on average three times what i do yeah same 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 with me when i look i i went to a posh academic girls school my contemporaries are professors and consultants and what have you mm -hmm. yeah. i'm not yeah. ceos yeah. ceos yeah, yeah we, so, went, we, we went to girl boss schools, didn't we? We did. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically, we're not talking about, you know, there are other people who've had less privilege and you're saying that in this environment, yeah, I, I, I see it. And to go back to what we were saying earlier, what I was going to come on to say after saying how brilliant Joanne is, I think because there was space made for her very obvious brilliance when she was young, Joanne, in a way, was, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, it looked to me like Joanne was not expected to conform, whereas I was. However, Joanne is much more concerned about conforming than I am because I realised very young that I really wasn't capable of it. That's a really um, interesting insight around sort of choices you've had to make. And I'm curious now to think about fast forward Zoom from your young self making these choices about trying to fit in or not trying to fit in. How does that feel now that you're older, wiser, you have a, you know, you have a diagnosis? What do you see your future careers looking like? You know, how do you feel about work from now? I honestly don't don't know. I feel like it's always going to be I mean, I want to say something more optimistic, but I but but I feel like it's always going to be hard because I find one thing I do find extremely hard is asking the world for anything. Mm. And in my like li line of work, one thing you have to do is ask for money a lot, and I can't do that. I'm not good. I the thing I am most rubbish as at the deepest spike is uh, accruing capital, and I do worry about that. Mm. even though there think, are lots of things I am good at with the with your diagnosis do you think any of that has that helped you at all at work with some of these things um yes well I'm just open about it so so I know that if I strike people as well well I've told you why Mm. I think also what's interesting about the money spike is, you know, that it's not a core competency. Does it give you more freedom and license to go find someone who's good at that and partner with them? Well, I don't, I, I don't know about about license, but my my husband, who you saw earlier, has had a steady job the whole time we've been together, and I felt kind of bad about that because my my mother was unusual in her generation and that she she always had a career, and I think by the time my father died, she was earning more, which was almost kind of unheard of in Northwest London, Jewish middle class circles. And she was always, always very clear, her mother had been widowed early, you can't ever be dependent on a man. So I always felt as if I'd let her down. Whereas in contrast, my mother, who was Joanne's father's oh. sister, hated work, wanted to be a housewife, and only worked because she felt that she had to. 
Mm. It's interesting because they both had constraints, just different constraints than maybe the ones that you've experienced or wanted. I think so, yes. I think it's a big issue for people who are neurodiverse about economic independence and mm. progressing in the workplace. I think it, it makes things difficult if you don't fit into those like you've been describing, Joanna and Lisa, you know, those those sort of ways of moving through an organization, it is going to affect you economically. Which yeah, is I, and I mean, that's why I'm a, ver I'm a very big advocate for lots of reasons of universal basic income, because mm. I don't think anyone should have to starve to death as a punishment for being different. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Another mm. stat for you, only 16% of autistic people are in full-time work. Oh, that's a terrifying stat, actually. Yeah. Although that said, and, I, and I'll, I'll let you speak in a moment, Lisa, I'm sorry, is that um, full-time full work is actually quite difficult for a lot of us, and we choose. Yeah, but, you've, but you've had to choose, that's the thing. Yes. That's what the stats are telling us. That, which again, But it might also be, that might also not be an entirely accurate statistic given the level of underdiagnosis. Can I just come back on that and say, in, in contrast with Joanne, I've always managed to make ends meet. I have always earned independently and I've always found a way to do that. And is um, that because different things are difficult for you, do you think? I think it is because different things are difficult for me. Uh, and I think it's also partly because of how people read us differently. So I am always read as being cheerful and personable. Um, and I, as I said, I haven't bitten anyone in the workplace either yeah. as well. Yes, I mean, I there's still time. <laughs> I don't bite. I'm just seen as sort of quiet and solemn as what, and whatever. And people often interpret my rather blank face as judgmental. I mean, I may be judging them, but that's entirely independent okay. from what my face might look like. <laughs> hey, we're all judging all Not the exactly. time. Exactly, we all are. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think... I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, partly because I am so driven by anxiety about finances that I have always just and, and partly because I'm ADHD. So I really don't I really don't know how to pronounce that other kind of no. I can I can do the one that with a K but and a W, but not the other one. So um, and, and that's partly anxiety driven as yeah. well. Going back to the Birkbeck College study, they list neurodivergent employees report remarkable abilities and work strengths, and the employees agreed with them, and they are over 80% reported hyperfocus, 78% reported creativity, 75% innovative thinking, 71% detail processing, and 64% being authentic at work. And what I think is so interesting about this, and I want to hear your response to that, which is that these qualities apparently speak directly to the World Economic Forum's reported top skills needed for 2025. Wow. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the one thing I have having, you know, we, we've talked about how quiet and although Lisa said I'm more concerned about conforming or concerned over the fact that I don't. One thing people always say about me, and it's something I, I have in common with a lot of autistic people, is I'll come out of a work meeting and people will think I'm outspoken or I came out and said something. Whereas as far as I'm concerned, I've just said the really, really basic, obvious thing that for some bizarre reason I can't fathom, no one is saying. And people find me useful for that. I mean, that is a superpower. It is. It's mm -hmm. a, that is a great strength and someone has to do it because they're yeah. all thinking it. 
but I'm not even, you know, I I, I didn't do it thinking, ha ha, I'm going to set the cat among the pigeons. I think, yeah. why is everyone going past the point? Well, surely the point is. So before we let you go, are you on the right side of 40 today? Probably. The good answer. How about you, Lisa? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I have to say menopause. I mean, I was very lucky. I only had raging anxiety, insomnia um, and hot flushes, all of which were much better than periods. But I have to say this side of menopause is just so I, I can be me now. I love it. So yes. But yes, it gets better when you're older. Excellent. For, for me anyway <laughs> but i i'm also loving you know i'm i'm loving the circumspection of yours joanne that like you know we'll see how it goes and i'm loving the energy from you lisa <laughs> as well and we can't thank you enough for joining us today and sharing your stories your life what you've experienced we're really grateful and thank you thank, thank you, you for very inviting much. us thank you <laughs> thank you for having us yeah this has been brilliant thank you both so much Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, let us know about it. We also want to hear what you've been up to since turning 40. Get in touch on our website, rightsideof40pod.com. Follow us on Twitter at RightSide40, Instagram at RightSideOf40Pod, and Facebook at the Right Side of 40 Podcast. All content is arranged by Eve and Caroline. And a big thank you to Terry and V. Neal for writing, performing, and mixing the original music.